Hi, Hillside. You know, we, uh, I was trying to decide whether my uh, appetizer was an appetizer or dessert. I think it's going to be an appetizer today. You know, I'm always talking about the subject of spiritual warfare, but I want to come at it from a different, a different place today. And, you know, I was thinking about, uh, Bruce, your word is so incredible because I was on, on my heart, but I think, like, if I get up again, they're going to hear me. I just up here too much, but... Um, you know, last this last week, uh, you know, an uh, officer was killed over in the Middle East. You know, uh, everywhere we turn, in, even in halls where people are being murdered, things are going on. I'd have to say we're in a spiritual war. And only in gearing up and having that mindset are we going to be able to overcome the distractions that are attacking us, or especially our own soul, our own feelings that want to give us, uh, want to just cause us to give up and retreat. But we, if you've asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, you've been drafted. You're in the army now. You're not behind the plow. You know, and my dad, when he, when he got drafted, he talked about uh, facing those opportunities uh, that he had to go and go on a foreign beachhead and land. He talked about being so afraid uh, that not being able to sleep, you know, and then all of a sudden, He'd close his eyes for a minute, and he'd think he'd been sleeping for 10 minutes, and it's all quiet, and what's happening? Wake up in this terror. And so those of us who are Christians and believers, there is an assault against us in our faith, and it's coming in directly in our emotions and feelings, and it wants us to give up. We must contend for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We must contend for the Word of God and to become strong in our spirit. My dad talked about those early days. They give you that whatever ration it is, but it has to do with mainly candy bars. It's sugar because there's such an adrenaline with being in combat and, and having to be awake that you, you're just eating sugar to, to survive. But he talked about the longevity of a campaign, being, being on an island for over a month, on the line, on that front line fighting. And he talked about feeling tired and weary and yet, you've got to be vigilant. You've got to be uh, aware because your very life depends on what you're doing and, and how alert you are. And, you know, having feelings of wanting to go back where the mortarmen are nor back towards the beachhead where they actually have fires going, they're cooking their food, they're drinking coffee, and, yeah, they get called in, they drop a mortar here and there, but really, they're in a safer place. He talked about, oh, to be back in that safety zone, you know, where you didn't have to, you know, be facing the enemy eyeball to eyeball. But there's that commitment they have that if they don't stick together and rally and hold the line, then they can lose their life or their, their buddy next to them could, could lose their life. And so they're in foxholes, two foot apart, all the way across the island as they're moving forward and advancing. We must be determined in our walk that we are going to possess whatever the enemy is telling us we're not going to get. Whatever he's saying, you can't have it. Because he's living in that territory, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's your own spiritual existence, whether it's contending for the very love of God that we first experienced when we asked Jesus Christ to come into our life. I tell you, all hell has been released against the church. He does not want you to continue and to contend. He does, want you, does not want you to rise up and to be a contender in faith, a contender for your life and the life of your friends and your family. He wants you to become, God wants you to become so strong that you are not pushed back by any feelings, any thoughts, any emotions. No matter what it looks like, you are to rise up in your faith and to believe that God is with you and God has a plan. In the middle of conflict, in the middle of opposition, when you're trying to work out even relationships with people and it seems like it's not going and you feel like, oh, I might as well just give up, 
just forget it. When you feel like putting up the walls in your heart, you say no. You're even praying under your breath. I don't know how you're going to work this out, God, but I'm calling on you because you're the restorer. You're the one who's in this. You're the one that wants me to stand in faith. And so you contend for what you know is truth. And if you never see it, you, you die like one of those heroes of faith where you experience the grace when you pass on to the, over, uh, to the other side. Many men and women have died in combat for our nation in the last over 200 years. Died in faith believing that there would be freedom. Giving up their life knowing that somehow it would be better. Or knowing that uh, another country or another, another people group would have the opportunity to have a taste of freedom. We, we are not actually losing our life for that, but we lose our life by denying our flesh, by denying our self-will, by denying our feelings and our thoughts that want us to give up and just go home and sit back and, and take it easy. No, there's a dying world out there. There are incredible gifts and callings in your life that God wants to stir because you are needed. You are needed in this time. In World War II, America needed her sons and her daughters to rally the whole world was at war. I tell you, we're in a universal war, and the whole world needs to rally in the kingdom of God and to, and to face the opposition of the enemy and to walk out the victory. This scripture, so familiar about spiritual warfare, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we talk about the Holy Spirit in our life, but I tell you, you know one of the greatest weapons is? It's the love of God. The Bible says when we receive Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God in Romans 5, 5, and it's released into our heart. There's a manifestation of God's love in our heart. And I want to ask you today, if you're not feeling that love, then I would ask God, God, fill me with your love. God, today, baptize me afresh. Manifest the love of God. Pour that love of God into my heart. And if there's things that have hurt you, if you're feeling angry or a little mad at God or, or you're struggling with something where your heart is closed, begin to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you with love. It is the love of God that can penetrate every bitterness, every stronghold, every mindset, every opposition that you're facing, every negative thing that, you're th that the enemy's telling you it's never going to change. God's never going to do anything for you. It's the love of God that begins to change that mindset. It's the love of God that penetrates the hardness of our own heart, the hardness that our, our mind, will, and emotions are constantly uh, experiencing in this world. The negative news, the, the negative feelings, the, the negative reports, the negative things about the economy, everything that comes against us is trying to shut our heart down. That's where the love of God resides. That's where the love of God comes in. The Holy Spirit is the home, is in your spirit, it's in your heart. That's where the home of the Holy Spirit is. That's where the Godhead dwells in mightily. That's where your inner man is strengthened to the core. It's the Holy Spirit that comes to strengthen you. It's the Holy Spirit that comes to feed you the Word of God and the food that you need that you can rise up and become strong in spirit. And so that love of God becomes a mighty weapon of God. God's character, think of what it says in... Um, John, let me read some verses. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, John writes, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. That's the biggest thing. There are so many attributes and characteristics of God. But the foremost, the main component of who he is, I'd say maybe 99% of who he is, is love. And I don't know about you, but this world is constantly looking for love. People go from person to person trying to be loved. 
But no broken person can give you the love that we were created to have, and that's being connected to our Creator. We talk about relationship, but it's really the love of God. It's feeling and experiencing the love of God that changes everything for us. That's the buy-in. Maybe a lot of you felt it when you first accepted Jesus. You've heard my story when I was eight years old at Christmas time, when I'd been a selfish little kid for the last four or five years that I could consciously remember, always thinking about what am I going to get. It was the love of God in that Christmas season of December. I remember this one night, the love of God just started coming into my heart, and Jesus started loving me in a place that I had never felt loved, in a place that was so deep and so part of who I was. The love of God pressed in, and it, and it captured me, and it arrested me. And then when I was nine, just a few months later, I accepted Jesus Christ for my own personal Savior and began this walk. I haven't always felt loved. I've had to deal with anger and disappointment and bitterness and, and the frustrations that I experience in my own soul and my own things that come against me. But there are times that are unprecedented where the love of God comes when I am in the heaviest place, when I am in the most stress when I don't know where God's at, when I'm standing where I need to stand on that front line and I'm doing everything I know to do, but my emotions are constantly under assault and my mind is constantly telling me, why don't you just give this up? It's not working. There's just times when I go through that where the love of God just comes and he fills my heart and I'm assured I have bought into something that is more real than my mind telling me to quit it than my feelings telling me it's not working than me not seeing the promises of God fulfilled in my life there's something that says this is worth it and that's what God offers us since God is love it's the love of God. He wants to fill us. I say today, all of us, we should just start asking God right now. God, fill us with your love. God, it's time again. Manifest your love to us. In, this, in these few moments that we're with us, Lord, with the truth of this word, with the seeds of truth, that you are a God of love, I pray that you would manifest afresh the love of God. That's our weapon. That's our warfare. That is the greatest weapon that we have is to be able to love when people hate us, when people reject us, when everything is going wrong, when you're on the freeway and you want to curse, when you want to give that guy a bad hand sign, that you say, no, God bless that person. I did something, or, or they're irritated, and they're, they're in anger, or they're in temper. God, love that person. God, they need you. They need you, God. Verse 9 in First John 4, In this love of God was manifested toward us, that God was sent, has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation or payment, to be the appeasement for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We should. We all know it. We try so often to love people. We try to love our enemies. But it's when the love of God takes over, we could do it very easily. It just flows right. How many can agree with me? When you're feeling that love of God, it's so easy to just love people. It's so easy just to forgive people. It's so easy just to let go of those little irritations. Why? Because something has filled a place where anger, bitterness, resentment, and getting even resides in our old nature, in our old flesh. That thing that Satan's always trying to reactivate in our life our mind, will, and emotions, always trying to get our emotions backed up with our feelings and to, and to face off with people and to strike out. Verse 
Again, Romans 5, 5, the Holy Spirit is the source of God's love. Paul wrote, the, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has and was given to us. I tell you, every time we let God's love flow through our life, we are dealing the biggest devastating blow to Satan. When we can strike out in hatred and anger and we choose and allow God to, to flow love through us, we are striking the enemy at his heart. You know, we think if we could just curse the enemy out, you know, and just tell him off that that's digging him, that doesn't dig him. In fact, that feeds him. But when we turn and when instead of cursing, we bless, instead of hating, we love, we are sticking it to the enemy. We are putting the biggest sword in his heart because every time we do that, we show that God is greater in us and he's the one that's changing us. He's the one that's, that's so transforming us that we're not being used by Satan anymore. We're letting God use our mind, our will, and our emotions. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Paul the Apostle wrote, Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. This world is crying out for love, but our human love is not enough. The good deeds, the humanitarian deeds are not enough if, unless they're backed by the love of God. Unless there's a deeper motivation to see people come to Christ and have eternal life to have the support they need to get through this world and all the destruction, all the grief that there is. It's the love of God that we must walk out to a dying world, to a world that doesn't know love and doesn't even understand the true meaning of love. I tell you, we only understand and know love when we're experiencing God's love in our heart. You know, when, um, when Jesus tells us about how to pray in the Our Father prayer. And I hope you guys are praying the Our Father prayer. There are so many key components in that prayer to pray every day. But part of that daily prayer, Jesus is saying about praying some specific things. In Mark 6, that prayer is recorded, but verses 10 and 15, I want to focus on this morning. Jesus told us to ask this, Father, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins, our debts, as we forgive our debtors. You know, it's conditional. Are we open to forgive people? And if we're not, it's okay to see that we have an area, but that's where you stop and you begin to take it to God and you begin to write it out or analyze why you're not forgiving a person. Maybe deeper than this one person is a deeper place, a deeper root of bitterness, something deeper that has happened to you that is connected to that person who triggers it. Maybe there's that person you're focusing your unforgiveness on, but it really is connected to, to something else. The Holy Spirit can help you identify where you have unforgiveness. Why? Because He wants you to get that out of you. He wants to help you pull that taproot of bitterness, that taproot of unforgiveness. Why? Because it's affecting you. It's affecting the flow of love in and out of your heart. It's affecting your attitude about life, your attitude about God, your attitude about every situation that's going to get thrown at you. God wants you to forgive because he wants to keep forgiving you. God wants that flow to be so there that you are so accustomed to having the love of God in your life that you're very confident. Even though your, your emotions can be assaulted, your confidence is in God loves you and you're walking your talk and you're walking with God. And that's where you get stronger and stronger. That's where even at times you ignore your emotions and feelings because you realize they're just emotions and feelings. And really, you are stronger because God 
has strengthened you in your heart, in your spirit. Verse 13 goes on. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's interesting how forgive us our debts is so connected with delivering us from the evil one. First, he tells us to make sure we have the forgiveness area clear. And then he says to pray deliverance from the evil one. I tell you, when we cut people free through, through unforgiveness, we're cutting the, uh, the enemy out too. We're saying, hit the road. As we let go of bitterness, as we let, let go of uh, things that we have against each other, there's that place to experience Satan getting cut free too. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When we accepted Jesus, we didn't really understand what we were getting into. And I know our flesh sometimes wants us to backtrack, but I, come on, there's such a good deal, eternal life. And so we've got to realize that we're in the kingdom now. We're connected to something that's going to be greater. And, out, and, and far after we're gone, it's, it's, we're going to be in a different place, a place greater than anything we could ever imagine. And just as Jesus has been faithful to do all that he's done, he's been faithful to tell us about, for a Christian, we just leave this body and go into eternity. So there's great comfort in what God says to us. Verse 14 says, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, always beware of that when you read it in scriptures, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Ever been caught in that cycle, that merry ground of unforgiveness and bitterness and attacking and everything else? That's that merry ground because we're not forgiving. Matthew 18, 21 through 35, if you want to look it in your Bible or on your iPhone. The parable, the story of the unforgiving servant. And I don't know about you, but I need constantly, I need to walk in forgiveness because I'm human and I live in, in this world and I have real relationships. And all the people I'm in a relationship with, they're broken people also. So this is a constant work. This is a constant effort. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You know, that's common, especially in families, marriages, work relationships, uh, extended families, even friendships. We get tired. We want to get to this place where I want to be justified. I don't want to keep forgiving this person. I don't want to keep uh, forgiving my spouse. I've been married for 33 years. I don't want to keep forgiving her. Peter's coming to him just like that, saying that, Lord, this is real. Give me a limit. Give me a number, you know, and then I can lash out. You know, then I can, then I can exact my feelings towards that person. Up to seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times 7. In other words, Jesus was saying in one day, there's no limit. No matter how many times your brother offends you, you got to forgive him. Therefore, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, and saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. 
But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told them, their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. It's interesting how often are we under the torturers, the tormentors, and that's Satan because of unforgiveness. Any door of unforgiveness gives an opportunity for the evil one to agitate you, irritate you, and what he does, he justifies your feelings, he justifies your position, he justifies uh, uh, you and how you look at things, and he says that other person has the problem. And so the torture, the tormentor, works on you and me as long as we walk in unforgiveness. And that robs us of peace. It robs us of joy. It robs us of good relationships. It robs us of the blessing of God that is supposed to be in our life constantly. Here's, the, here's what verse 35 says. So my heavenly Father also, this is Jesus talking, will do to you, each of you, if from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass, his sins. So again, it's clearly laid out in the Word of God. When we're not forgiving, you know, we don't get forgiven. And I don't know about you, but I can have my, I could leave here today and get in my vehicle and someone cut me off or do something to me and I feel anger or I feel like I want to get even. So I have to constantly walk in forgiveness. I don't know about you, I have to constantly walk in that forgiveness. I have to keep letting it go. I have to keep saying, God, forgive me again. Here's my old nature. It's trying to come up. It's trying to get me to react. It's, it's trying to get me to have unforgiveness and bitterness. God, bless that person. God, forgive me. God, keep cleansing. Keep working on my heart. Keep changing me so that there's this openness between you and me so I can walk in this humility and this humbleness. It's interesting that we can say we forgive a person, but forgiveness, true forgiveness, goes in and out of the heart. Jesus said, you have to forgive from your heart. And that, again, might take some time because our heart is so connected with real emotions, real feelings. And so sometimes when we glibly say we forgive a person, but down deep we, we, we're holding on to something, that's where we go to prayer. That's where we go, God, it's almost like, you know, that's where the battle is really the fiercest. When we give up our rights to be right, that is so, that cuts, talk about dying to yourself. That's when true change happens, when we give up our right to be right. When we go through our list of justifying our opinions, our attitudes, and, and how we're acting towards a person, that's where the rubber meets the road. When we humble ourselves and say, God, I don't even want to do this. I'm right. How many of times we've said that? I am right, and we've stood in our position, and yet there's been a, a block between something God wants to heal in a relationship, but we stand in our position, and we say, I'm right, and we feel 
with all the feelings that we have, all the righteousness that we have, the self-righteousness that rises up there and seems just like God-righteousness. But as we let God work on our heart, we realize, I have to let this go. And letting go means like someone got something over on us, something be- somebody bested us. And if you have any kind of trauma, rejection, or anything in your life, it's such a hard thing to realize, I have to give this up. And that, at that point, is where God sets us free. Again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit who lives in our home. You know, we really just cooperate with Him. He's a great house cleaner. He doesn't like to live in a dirty house. And so He'll do the work. He'll get the Swiffer out. He'll get the Dyson out. He'll get the Shark out. He'll get that, that big old machine that Safeway sells that scrubs your carpets. Or you can call David to have your carpets scrubbed. But he does that deep work of cleaning what you can't clean, but you have to get to that place in your heart where you realize this is wrong, even though it, it feels justified. This is wrong, and it's, it's killing my relationships, and it's killing me and Jesus, and it's killing and stopping the love from flowing in my heart. And I don't know about you, I need that for myself first. I need that love of God to flow into my heart first. What does that do? It establishes me that I, I am in relationship with God, my Father, that I am walking out my talk. And then it flows out to other people. And when you're loving people with God's love, there is nothing like that. There are such profound moments that I have at times where I just am loving every person. I'm thinking that has to be God's love because I don't love that easily. I have enough history in my life. I have enough things I dealt with with depression, with rejection as as an early child, and different things I went through. I have enough history in my mind, will, and emotions, I have enough things established by my life experiences to have reasons why I, I don't want to trust anyone. I don't want to love anyone. But coming to Jesus, realizing I have to keep letting go of stuff to keep getting more of God. And it does change us. It does transform us. I just want to give this final thing about dealing with a, a, a sinning brother. Matthew, 5, Matthew 15, 15. It might be 18. I'm not seeing that good yet. C- up close. I can see up far. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, I think it's Matthew 18, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If our church really starts doing that more and more, I tell you, there's going to be an explosion in this church of relationships, of trust, of true love. This church is going to even grow. We'll have to go to two or three services. Jesus said, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That just eliminates gossip. That eliminates people taking sides. That eliminates so much drama. I hate drama. Unless it's something you watch on TV. Go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you will have gained a brother. Now, the intent in that person going to his brother and not telling anyone, it shows something really good going on in his heart. He cares about that person. He doesn't want someone else to to hear his grievance so they can do a little pat on the back, do a little pity party with him. Oh, you poor, how could that person do that to you? Oh, let me stroke your pain. Oh, oh. Now, when the person goes to a person, they realize, I have a vested interest in this person, and and somehow we're out of whack in our relationship, and I want it back. I want it back big time. And so they go. Why? 
Because they know when people start hearing that people know their business, people back up. People don't want to be around where their business is told. They don't want to be shamed. It's one thing if we tell, drop a dime on ourselves. My truck driver used to say drop a dime. It's probably drop a couple dollars now on the phone. But no one, no one wants that going around. But when we go person to person, it shows, hey, I care about you. I want to be relationship. I want to be restored. I want this right. But if that brother does not hear, take with you one or two more, and that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And let me tell you, a lot of times when strife in relationships and when there's things going on, the enemy is really trying to have things go on and on and on. Really, that's the work that the enemy says. It says in the New Testament, wherever there's argument and strife, there's every other kind of evil demonic activity going on. Because Satan wants to get between relationships. He wants to cause hostility and, and more drama. And so if you can work things out, and getting another person is simply a person, hopefully you're going to get a person that really knows that person you want to talk to and loves that person. You're not going to get someone who just loves you. You want to get something that, that loves that person because you want to break into that person's heart and you want your relationship restored. And so you're doing it the Bible way. Isn't the Bible a great uh, handbook on how to have relationships? We should probably read Matthew 18 regularly. Verse 17, And if your brother refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear in the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. You know what that's saying? Sometimes there's something so deep in a person that if they are not getting it right, they're going to affect the whole church. And so he's saying, this is the procedure to real deal, deal with healing relationship. Verse 18, Surely I say to you, this is the context of binding and loosing also. Surely I say unto you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you see the great power of binding and loosing in relationships? There's a powerful breaking of hostility, of, of uh, broken relationships through this process. Whatever you do according to God's word, if you're working out relationships in, in the natural with people, with God's help, you're breaking strongholds in the spiritual realm. You're releasing heaven's love. You're releasing heaven's blessing on your relationship because you're doing it God's way. It goes in verse 19, Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. You know, one thing I've learned about, you know, re restoring relationship and stuff, commitment is one of the biggest factors. And I, I see it working in marriage. Because I'm committed. I committed 33 years ago to a woman to stay in a relationship and work things out. And it hasn't always been easy. But what, what has kept me going is my commitment to God first. Because even when I can't get along with Dory, my commitment with God helps me. And it helps me work out things. And because of commitment, you know, those of you who are married know that you can let go of things. Why? Because you're committed. You made that commitment when you were at the altar. You made that commitment that de till death do you part, you were gonna you were gonna work things out. And God's grace comes when we work things out. E even those of us who are married know that, yeah, you could be irritated, agitated, but then there comes a point where you just let it go. You just let it go and you move on. Why? You're in relationship. 
And if you keep strife going, you're robbing yourself. You're emptying the bank account. Now, appetizer's done. It's time for the main meal. I want to I keep moving forward in Colossians 1. It is a rich uh, gold deposit of nuggets. I gave you this verse at the end of the service last week. It's Colossians 1.16. For it was Jesus that all things were created. In him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Things seen, things unseen, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created and exist through him, Jesus, by his service, intervention, and in and for him. So everything you see and look around, it's, he is behind everything. It, it's incredible. Look around. Look at all the awesome creations that there are in this room. You are his highest creation. But everything we see, the cars we drive, everything came from the mind of God. His creative ability is incredible. But one of those greatest things, I think, is, is us. That he spoke us into existence. He, he formed us out of the dust of the ground. It was in his mind and in his heart that we would be created. And um, you might say that what the verse is saying is Jesus is really the center of all things. And because of the fall of man, we became the center. Me, 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 I, I, I. I, I love Brian Regan because he, he does such great things about me, I, me, me. You know, he talks about getting big, and uh, it just cracks me up every time I watch it because that's really how we are. We're born into this world, and you see even a little baby, when, they're first, when they first start crawling around, their, their selfishness comes out. They want the toy. They want this. They want the attention. And it's that selfishness that, that has deflected everyone else and God. So that fallen nature that we are born with is we are now, or we have become the center of the universe. And only in Christ are we getting our centers back where Jesus is at the forefront of our life. He is on the throne. He is the one we think about. He's the one we live for. He's the one we are following after. He's the one we listen to his words and we receive the word of God and we allow the word of God to change our heart. Why? So we can keep putting Jesus first. Why? Because when we put the creator, when we put Jesus first, the best that God has for us comes into being. The best of who we're to be comes up out of our life. And even the strength that we have in God to do hard things or even to pick up our cross every day, which is denying our selfish old nature and living for Jesus or deciding I'm going to forgive today, deciding I'm going to let that thing go, deciding I'm going to love someone, deciding I'm going to serve someone, I'm going to do something for someone else. That all comes because we put Jesus first. Jesus has always, always existed. In Peter's letter, he continues to refute all the religious alternatives that come against the truth of the gospel. In Colossians 1.17, he writes, And he, Jesus, himself existed before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things consist, cohere, and are held together. So again, it's so important for us to keep putting Jesus first in our life. Adam Clark, in his commentary, wrote this. Four things are, her, are here asserted. Number one, that Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. Of all things visible and invisible, of all things that had a beginning, 
whether they are existed whether they existed in time or in eternity Jesus the creator made everything for himself and for his purpose so even one of the reasons why we gather together is like we want to further grow and gain understanding in our heart and grow spiritually so as our spirit becomes strong we become more aware of what our purpose is in God and how he wants to use us number three that he was our was prior to all creation that's Jesus to all beings whether in the visible or invisible world number four that God he is the preserver and governor of all things for by him all things consist now allowing St. Paul to have understood the terms which he used he must have considered Jesus Christ as being truly and properly God obviously if he's creator and everything's created for him that he's he's the most important here's some other supporting Bible verses John 1 3 all things were made and came into existence Jesus the word was not even one thing made that has come into being and here's a good thing to remember about God in James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He's constant. He made everything for us. He made, he and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, they created everything and they created everything for our good. And so our connection with Jesus keeps bringing us into that greater fulfillment for our lives. God speaks through Jesus in Hebrews 1, 2. In the last days, God has spoken to us in the person of his Son, whom he appointed heir and lawful owner of all things, also by and through whom he created the world and the reaches of space and the ages of time. He made and produced, built and operated, and arranged them in order. When you think about how God, through Jesus Christ, Jesus being the creator right there, Everything operates through him. I look at what a wonderful and marvelous thing we are. He created us. We have life in ourselves. You know, we can build cars. We can build homes. We can create little projects. But really, there's no life in us. God, Jesus, is the only one that when he creates something, he has the ability to generate a life force and to impart a life force that causes that thing to continue to live. None of us can do that. You know, all the scientists say that, you know, they're having all these breakthroughs and they're creating life. They're just simply taking things that are already together and putting them together and creating an environment for that thing to grow and a process for that thing to develop. They're not creating anything. God started with nothing and spoke everything into existence. We are incredible. We are incredible because God's life has been imparted to us and it's in our spirit. That's why someday we're going to step out of this earth suit, these earth clothes, and we're going to go into heaven. That's why someday the graves are going to open up. The ashes are going to be collected from every person that's been uh, sent all over the world. And God's going to put a body back together and make it a supernatural body that'll never die, that our spirit can inhabit. There is incredible life in Jesus. That's why we want to be connected with him. That's why we want, we want to know him to the, to the utmost. That's why we, we want to experience all of his presence and his power, because he's a life giver. And that's why he's come and covenanted with us to be in with us, to live inside of us, to help us, to fill us with love, to fill us with purpose, 
to even help us again in our relationships, in our forgiveness, and everything that we need. Again, man can make idols, he can make things, but man has no power to impart life to something. It's even uh, in, in our, in our uh, you know, having children. You know, a man and woman come together, but even in them, the seed and the sperm, as that comes together, it's still, like uh, Psalms 39 says, it is a work of God. It's a kind of a mystery that happens when the Spirit is put into that, that baby that's being conceived. That's a miraculous thing, that God is so involved with us. He's such, a, he's such an awesome creator. John 1, 1 through 4, In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Jesus Christ, and the Word, Jesus, was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God himself. Jesus was present originally with God. All things were made and came into existence through Jesus, and without Jesus was not even one thing made that, he, that has come into being. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That's what happens to us when we receive Jesus. Our spirit is made alive. It's reconnected with God. And that's why the light begins to shine out through our eyes, through the windows of, of our soul. The light shines out of our eyes. You can see people after they've experienced the Holy Spirit, after they've read the word of been with Jesus, they, their eyes are shining. I've watched my wife come out of her times with Jesus. I've, there's times I told her, go talk to Jesus. And she's come out. And there's like a glow, there's like a shine that comes out of our eyes. You know, all of us, we can be in the most bitter, bitter place, and we go spend a little time with Jesus. We're infused with life. The light of God shines out of our eyes. It's like turning on the lights in a house. The light shines out of those windows, and you see that there's someone living there. That's the same thing with the Holy Spirit living in our life. He brings light out of us. He brings hope and encouragement and peace through us. Here's a Bible backup. Genesis 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus, there. Isn't it something? God is so powerful that out of nothing, He can speak something into existence. I looked in, uh, in Genesis 1, uh, one six, about the responses to God's creative words, and in verse verses, um, chapter one, verses seven, nine, eleven, fifteen, and twenty four and thirty, God, after He spoke something, He would say, and it was so. Whoa! Talk about power! Talk about power! God speaking, it was so. That's why we take in the Word of God. That's why we're open for the Holy Spirit to give us a live Word, a, a rhema Word, a Word that's living and active. Because when God gives a living Word to us, we can camp on it. We can, we can activate. We can plan that it's going to happen. That's why um, when I read in the beginning about hope, when Abraham received the Word that he was going to be a father of many nations, even when him and Sarah could not produce, even when he was... Uh, 75 years old and hadn't happened. That's why he had faith in God. He knew him and Sarah were past the age of being able to produce anything, but he held on to the word of God. And out of nothing, when there was no hope, there was nothing that could be seen, his hope was in the word of God that had been given to him. And that's the word that Jesus wants to constantly give to you. That's why the enemy wants to distract you and keep you separated because he knows when you're tracking with the word of God, you are going to keep growing in your hope and in your faith. You're going to keep believing because Jesus is going to tell you things that he's going to make happen in your life. And they're going to be things that are impossible. They're going to be things that the enemy will pull all kinds of resistance towards. Why? 
because he knows he is the God who does the impossible things. He's the one that says things that are to happen, even though when it looks like it's not going to happen. He's the one that causes the impossible to become possible. So if God is the creator, Jesus is the creator, what about everything evil? Let me give you a little insight, because God gives us insight into what really happened. I love these two uh, passages of Scripture in the Old Testament because they, they tell us uh, of Satan and, and the, the, the how evil came about. The first one is Ezekiel 28, 12-17. And e- Ezekiel the prophet has this dual message. One, he's bringing this message to the king of Tyre, but also he's letting uh, all, all those back then and all of us in the future know a little insight into what happened in the fall when Satan fell. So Ezekiel says, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, Son of man, God's telling him, take up a lamentation of the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. So in the moment he's changing now, he's talking about Lucifer, he's talking about Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and the emerald with gold. The workmanship of your trumpet and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Again, he's talking about his call to be the predominant worship, the the, the exalted cherub, the the king, the number one angel who who funneled worship and who had the ability with music and songs to bring worship to God. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. You were perfect till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub. For the midst of the fiery stones, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your own splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Isn't that something? We see something God created, but something in Satan. God's grace, even allowing something so great that something could be changed, something could get corrupted in the, in the very depths of, of who Lucifer was. Isaiah echoes the same thing in Isaiah 14, 21. Oh, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. Again, that's what he does in our mind, will, and emotions. I will take vengeance. I will be angry. I will do my own thing. Satan is using us to carry out his vendetta against God to shake his fist at God and be in rebellion. He's seeking to draw all of us away and take us to hell. That's why we've got to become strong in God. That's why we have to reach a world that's broken and lying and being used. Their own life is being used against God so that he can destroy them. Verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Again, pride and arrogance that comes up even in our lives where we defy each other and we stand against God at times uh, because of what Satan does in our old nature. Yet God declares you should be brought down to Sheol, hell, the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? 
that, would we see Satan, who he really is someday, before he's put into the pit forever, the world is going to say, this is the one? I think that he is, in his fall, he is so minuscule, he is so hideous in the way he looks. I think that the world is going to say, wow, this is the guy that duped us? This is the guy that drove nations away from God? That's why now we have to take the wisdom of God's word and who Jesus is, and we've got to rise up and be the people God wants us to be. In Isaiah 54, so now we have an understanding. God created everything, and even Satan he created, but Satan corrupted himself, and now he's the one working evil. He's the sore. Even though God created everything, Satan has perverted God's creation, and that's what we deal with. Everything that's sin, everything that's foul, Satan has perverted something that was good and changed it. In Isaiah 54, 16 and 17, God is speaking again through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals of fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the spoiler to destroy. So again, we have an understanding how even God uses Satan. But he says to us who believe in him, verse 17, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall be condemned. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is far from me. Um, no, his righteousness is from me, not far. God is good, and uh, Jesus declared in Matthew nineteen seventeen, no one is good but God. He is good. Our key scripture today, would our worship team come up? Colossians 1, 18. He, Jesus, also is the head of his body, the church, seeing he's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that he alone in everything and in every respect might occupy the chief place, stand first, and in preeminence. The local church is like a politician who gathers his supporters to try to take office so that he can change things and, and do something. We, because Jesus is at the head of the church, gather to grow strong spiritually, to have our mind renewed to the truth about this world and about the purposes of our life. We band together. We are standing that we might promote the kingdom of God so that someday, even if we pass on before he comes back, we are those that are creating this, this throng of people who are buying into the kingdom of God and buying into a relationship with God so that when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom on the earth, the church will be established. I'm excited. I hope you are.